Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Redeemer. My name is Jason Myers, and I'm excited uh, to dive into Scripture today with you all via Zoom uh, and our passage today from 1 Kings uh, chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles uh, at home, uh, we'll be spending time in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, and we're going to focus on today's Old Testament reading that focuses on one of the most famous characters, I think, in the Bible and Israel's history, uh, King Solomon. Maybe you've uh, obviously heard of him. So I find something interesting about famous historical figures. Uh, They get a really interesting treatment when we try to remember them, Um, not just biblical characters, but even characters from uh, our own uh, history. Uh, It's amazing what we remember about them and equally incredible uh, what we actually forget about historical uh, figures. We're, We're selective. Because uh, the thing about history is there's a lot of it. And so what our brains do is we tend to flatten and to simplify, one might say oversimplify, uh, historical figures and famous people, for better or worse. Uh, small example. Uh, so during the pandemic, uh, one of the things that's been on TV has been uh, a series on ESPN, now on Netflix, uh, about Michael Jordan called The Last Dance. Uh, now, as a kid of the 90s, uh, I was watching back through this and reliving moments of my childhood that I remember sitting in front of a TV screen, sometimes late at night, uh, watching Michael Jordan win a bunch of basketball games. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, I thought I kind of really knew Michael Jordan, right? I, I remember the stories. Uh, for example, his greatness in basketball is unparalleled. But one of the things that the series brought up that I had for, forgotten, because my understanding of Jordan had been simplified, was that his treatment of his teammates was not all that great. My memory had forgotten that. Because what we, what we remember are the game-winning shots, the championships, but we forget the parts that are a little more rough around the edges. Uh, This nostalgia uh, led me uh, to go back and purchase a pair of Air Jordans. I had this uh, moment from my own childhood where I never had a pair, uh, and so in my own simplistic kind of thinking about the past, I thought, you know, I never had a pair of those shoes, and so I went and I purchased them. I'm actually wearing them this morning. You can't see them, Uh, but maybe uh, that's how you think about the past too. You think about the things that Maybe you had or you didn't have, uh, and it creates a longing for it, right? Uh, Our minds do this. We remember the good parts, and we screen out the bad parts. And this all raises the question about how we tell our history, both our own personal history, world history, our national history, because we have a forgetting. And we have a forgetting for various reasons. Sometimes it's because we don't want to come to grips with some of the more painful parts of that history. Sometimes that intentional forgetting, we might call this nostalgia, right? It's a word I've already used. Nostalgia is this kind of surfacey understanding of the past, this simplistic understanding. What's funny is that the word nostalgia has not always existed. The word nostalgia was coined in the 1680s in Sweden uh, by a medical student. And what that medical student did is they combined the Greek words for home and for pain into the word nostalgia that we use today. And it was described as a painful longing for home. 
That's what nostalgia is. And early on, nostalgia was thought to be a negative medical condition of soldiers. That's actually where the medical student uh, came about his research. He saw these soldiers far away from home exhibiting all these conditions and said this was a negative medical effect. So nostalgia is a, is a bad thing uh, physically. Uh, now, luckily today, we don't think of nostalgia necessarily as a medical condition, right? But there is still a negative side effect of nostalgia. I don't know if you've ever thought about nostalgia from this viewpoint, but one of the first things to think about when we think about nostalgia is that nostalgia is a weird form of pride. Why is it prideful? Because nostalgia at its core is all about how you remember the past. It's very you-focused. Your great memory could be someone else's nightmare. Think about high school. Now, I'm not accusing anyone of this, but you could imagine a situation where someone might say, high school was the best time of my life. Great memories. It's all rosy. But you could interview someone else at a, let's say, a high school reunion, uh, and their classmates, and they might say, actually, that was the worst time of my life. And actually, you made it really hard to go to school. That actually wasn't a great memory. But this is what nostalgia does, right? It warps that history so that it focuses only on us and not on the others around us. It's selective. And here's the thing about nostalgia. It's rarely accurate, and it's rarely truthful. The mists of history often conceal rather than reveal the way things really were, right? And I want to say as Christians, one of the things I find interesting about this is that we are not a people meant to live with nostalgia. We are not a people as Christians oriented towards nostalgia. And we're going to unpack that in this sermon. We're not supposed to live with nostalgia because I believe God will not let us. God does not allow us. He might even protect us from the dangers of nostalgia. Uh, how do we know this? How can I make such a claim, right, that God doesn't want us to live with nostalgia? Well, take a look at the Bible. This may come as a shock, but the Bible is not a nostalgic book. It doesn't give us a simplistic history. It doesn't give us a rosy portrait. The characters that we meet in this story from Genesis to Revelation, the exception of one, are deeply, deeply flawed. No more so than the story we're looking at today in 1 Kings chapter 3 with Solomon. A, a big example of this actually occurs in the book of Exodus. You might remember this part of the story. Right after the Israelites are rescued out of slavery in Egypt, they want to go back. They're in the wilderness. Things are not going great. They're lost, right? Are on their way to the promised land. And they want to go back. They think, go, they think they're going to die in the wilderness. And so what they do is they complain to Moses, and Moses has to remind them that Egypt wasn't so great after all. Let that sink in. The Israelites had a nostalgia for Egypt. They had a nostalgia for a brutal past. It might not just be the Israelites either. We simplify. We pass over those things. But this is one of the interesting things that some, some psychologists have found about nostalgia. Nostalgia peaks in moments of transition, upheaval, and change. 
This seems to be a human condition. When we face times that are chaotic, say like a pandemic, right? What do we do? We long to get back to the past. You may have even said this throughout the pandemic, right? I can't wait for things to what? Return to normal. Chaos is around us. We want to go back to a past that we think was easier. But even in the midst of the pandemic, we have an awareness that life before the pandemic wasn't that great either in some regards. Some of us, not all of us, are enjoying more time at home with family and loved ones that we didn't have before. And that isn't to pepper over all the tragedy that has come with the pandemic. But look, at we, re- we want to return to a time before. Because when things get bad in the present, we look to the past. We even glorify that past. And I don't think God lets us do that, not then or even now. We have this nostalgia with biblical characters as well, and no one more so than someone like Solomon. Here's a little test. When you think about Solomon, and I'll give you like 10 seconds here, what do you think about him? Now, I realize everyone may not think about him all the time. That's probably perfectly normal. Uh, but if you did, let's take five seconds. I'll count. What do you think about when you think about Solomon? Awkwardly stand here. One of the stories that probably comes up is a story like today, right? The one we just heard read. That's the most recent one, right? The story about wisdom. A few quick stories come to mind. Solomon is the wise guy. He's smart. He's a great leader. He's the son of David. These are some of the versions of today's story that may be lodged in your brain. And the story goes like this. Solomon is asked by God what he wants, like today in 1 Kings 3. And this is his Aladdin genie in the bottle moment. He gets three wishes and he chooses wisely, right? Solomon does not ask for wealth, fame, or beauty. He asks for wisdom and God grants him wisdom. And I think that's the version of of his story that is lodged in our heads. And then after this, Solomon lived happily ever after. End of story. Let's go home. Sermon's over. Not so fast, right? This is definitely part of his story, the wisdom story here in 1 Kings 3, but it's not the entire story. And that version that we tell ourselves is definitely the more nostalgic part. So we're in this book called Kings, and the author of this book has given us a little clue for how to read the story of Solomon. They have tipped their hand right at the beginning that things in Solomon's day may not have been as great as we would have imagined. Now, this wasn't in the reading. This isn't not knocking the lectionary. But if you go back to verse 1, it actually gives us a clue that, that cracks open the entire story. So in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, here's what the author says. Right before the wisdom story. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now you may be thinking, okay, what's the big deal? That's a little historical data. We need to breeze by that anyway. That part's boring. What's the big deal about an alliance with Egypt? All political leaders need alliances, right? Well, there's a thing here. If you know the Old Testament well, there's a pretty important passage back in Deuteronomy 17, and it's a passage known as the Laws for Israel's Kings. And one of them is pretty important for our story today. Back in Deuteronomy 17, God forbids Israelite kings 
from precisely this activity, from making alliances with foreign kings by marrying their daughters. Because he wants, God wants Israel's king to trust him and not some other political allegiance. And so it's a big no-no for Israelite kings. And there's a whole warning in Deuteronomy 17 that if this happens, the king's heart will turn away from Yahweh. And so Deuteronomy says no political alliances by marriage. You're not allowed to do it because this will complicate the king's loyalty to God alone. So with that little piece in mind, as you come to 1 Kings chapter 3, knowing that kings shouldn't make foreign alliances with foreign daughters, read 1 Kings 3.1 again with new ears, and you hear a dire warning. Verse 1 again is, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. It reframes the entire story of wisdom. If you know the full story of Solomon, not the nostalgic version, you know that he is the last king of Israel to rule over a united kingdom. Because upon his death, because of his disobedience, the kingdom is torn apart in a civil war erupts. And you would also know if you continue reading through 1 Kings that this wasn't the only alliance that Solomon made. In fact, he made thousands of them. And so by the end of his life, he is worshiping idols. That's the irony and the tragic, tragic story of Solomon in in the book of Kings. The seeds of destruction were planted right here at the beginning. And the irony of the story today in 1 Kings 3 is that Solomon asks God for wisdom, but ultimately fails to live by it. It's a promise, it's an opportunity that in the story of Solomon's life, life is never fully realized. A great beginning, but a tragic ending. And this is ultimately what I think the story reveals to us. We can ask God for wisdom. We can ask God for his guidance, but if we ultimately fail to live by it, what's the point? That's the whole story of what Solomon's life actually reveals. There's something else that strikes me about the story of Solomon, and it's in verse 3. So we have this foreign alliance in in verse 1, big no-no. But then in verse 3, he says, uh, the author says, Solomon loved the Lord. This is juxtaposed with his disobedience. We have clear disobedience on one hand and this love of God on the other. What the story of Solomon teaches us, I think, is that it is entirely possible to believe that we are so committed to God. Our love is so strong. We can even build him a house, a temple, but have stronger loyalties at play. Those other loves, those other loyalties will ultimately be the undoing of Solomon. And I think the author of Kings right here at the beginning combines Solomon's disobedience and his love of Yahweh to show us that ultimately it was those other loyalties that proved stronger than his love for God. But what about us? If it's possible for Solomon, how is it possible for us too? Where might we say we love the Lord? But if our lives were narrated like 1 Kings 3, what would that verse 1 be? What would be juxtaposed with our affirmations and our 
proclamations of love, what would be juxtaposed with that love? We have other idols and loyalties by our side too. And what is that dissonance in our own lives that we see here in the first couple of verses of 1 Kings? Is it a people? Is it a country? Is it a form of history? How might we find these idols and uproot them? Because what the story of Solomon teaches us is that unless those loyalties are uprooted, those become idols that will corrupt our first love and break us. Solomon's story tragically bears this out. As we move towards an ending, there's something big about the book of Kings that I think I find very, very interesting in our time and place in which we find ourselves. And it's how the book of Kings relates to how we tell our stories, how we tell our histories. We began the sermon talking about nostalgia. And the book of Kings is no nostalgic book because the triumphs of Solomon, are put, his wisdom, his successes are laid right alongside his failures. Not just here in 1 Kings 3, but in the alliances that are documented throughout the book. Solomon ends up leading the kingdom to destruction. He ends up re-enslaving part of the population of Israel. He's a brutal king by the end of his reign. And what I find interesting is that the book of Kings does not turn a blind eye to the failures of its subjects, not even its kings. In fact, this actually stands out in the world of the Old Testament in the literary history of its day for this very feature. Scriptures call out their own kings for their failures. But why can the authors of Scripture do this? I don't think Solomon would want his life story narrated this way. He might want to leave that part out, verse 1, right? Focus on the better things. So why do the authors of Scripture continually give us this portrait? I grew up hearing, you know, as I grew up in church, that the scriptures always give us uh, an accurate and honest reflection of history. It doesn't hide away the messy parts. Something that was instilled in me. So why don't they paint a rosier picture? I think they can do this because they believe in a God who is bigger than their failures. They believe in a God who is more merciful and more forgiving than they could ever imagine. And that allows them to tell a more honest story about themselves. In fact, it's in this story that God tells them, he says, I am rich in mercy and steadfast in love for his people. And I think they took that seriously. I think they said God's mercy is serious. His grace is serious. His love for us is serious. So we can tell an honest story complete with failures and leave that as it were. So that makes me wonder, why do we reach for nostalgia in our own stories? both personal and national, and in our world. What does that say about the God that we believe in? What if hiding the tragic failures of our own stories is really a hiding from God himself? Because we can't come to grips with the painful realities and the evil choices that have been made. I think the story of God allows us to shine a light of God's good news on this tragic failures of people in history, both personal and national. The story that God tells us is that he is bigger than that failure and more merciful than we can imagine. So what does God do? He invites us to know the truth about ourselves, our world, and our story. 
And God invites us into this true story of ourselves, and he invites us, I think, to two actions, to confession and to repentance. And God's only requirement is that we cannot believe a lie. We are far too willing to settle for a lie than for the truth. And this is what we have to do. We have to pick truth over nostalgia. Because what nostalgia actually does at the end of the day is it hides the idols of our life. So how do we uproot those idols? As Christians, in God's great story, we do not have a longing for the past. We don't want to return to the way things were. We don't want to go back to a glory days. We have a hope for the future. As Jesus prays, he prays, your kingdom come. Christians do have a deep longing, and we do have a deep yearning for something different. We want things to be different, but it's not in a nostalgic past, but in the sure and future hope of God's coming kingdom. And as we tell our stories, may we begin to see from God's perspective where the truth lies, and to fall on his grace and mercy and confess and repent when we have chosen otherwise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.